Well, hello everyone. My name is David Denhan, and I am a ministry consultant with Pastor Church Resources of the Christian Reformed Church. It's my honor and privilege to be with you this morning as you and I gather for worship on this fifth Sunday after Easter. And we are making our way towards Ascension Day, of course, and then Pentecost afterwards. In the meantime, we're simply celebrating the fact that Jesus Christ has come back to life and that uh, the new life that he promises to all of us is taking shape already in our lives. And so as we gather for worship and as we think together about his word this morning, we know that it is the living Christ who is at work within us. I'd like to have you think with me about Psalm 139 this morning. Um, as we look at God's word, that's the place to which we're going to travel. It's a wonderful psalm. It's a well-known psalm. It's a psalm that's a little bit scary for the reason I'll talk about here in just a little bit. Um, but as we make our way to that psalm, I just want to have you uh, come with me into my family room at 6.30 in the evening uh, on any week night of the week. And the news is about to start. Uh, my wife, Connie, loves watching the evening news. It's a way to kind of keep in touch with the world, especially these days in the COVID-19 environment. And um, I watch with her from time to time. To be with her, of course, um, but also to catch up on what's going on around the world. Um, but there are times, quite honestly, that um, I would rather not watch the evening news uh, because that ends up making me either mad or sad. I find that uh, as I watch the evening news, the people who are there um, often portray themselves, especially if they're in any kind of power position, they portray themselves as kind of heroic. You know what I mean? Like President Trump or government, Governor Whitmer um, or people who are fighting for the poor or for the environment or something along that line. Or presidents of companies whose products are going to save the day in our coronavirus crisis. People like to present themselves as heroes. And they also tend to produce or present themselves uh, as they're talking to their audiences and as we're watching them on the news. They tend to talk about their opponents or, or about people who have different ideas from them as if those people are villains. If only those people would agree with me but they're too greedy or mean-spirited or narrow-minded. They just don't know enough or what have you. And so they are presented as villains by these folks who like to present themselves as heroes. And sometimes the people on the evening news present themselves not just as heroes, um, but also sometimes they use kind of a victim voice, like, if only the world were more fair to me, if only people on the other side of the aisle came around to my way of thinking, if only this or if only that. And so uh, they present themselves to the audience, to the people that are before them as victims. You know, these three voices, uh, hero, villain, and victim, these three voices are voices that I hear a lot on the evening news. And it reminds me a little bit of what I see when I watch little kids play with each other and get into little tussles. And uh, some little girl and her little brother will get into an argument. And inevitably, the one always is the victim and the other is always the villain. 
Whenever they come to mom and dad and tell on brother or sister, the one who's doing the telling is always the victim. And the one who's always been being told about is always the, the villain. I notice these things that uh, are true not just on the evening news and not just true as I'm watching little kids interact with each other, but I notice the same thing when I'm engaged in church conflict. When I, as a ministry consultant, find my way into these interesting conversations where people are hard, having a hard time getting along with each other, they tend to slip into these voices, right? I'm the victim of somebody else's injustice. Or the other people are the villains here in the story that I'm telling you, Pastor Dave. Um, it's easy to slip into these kind of voices. And I actually see the same kind of thing in my own heart, to be honest with you. I categorize people a little too quickly sometimes based on what I'm observing or on my interactions with them. Oh, that person's kind of a victim all the time. Or that person is certainly the villain here. Or that person is kind of the hero, bringing solutions to this mess that we're dealing with. And then once I've arrived at that perspective, it's easy to keep, them, keep those people there, to box them in and pretend that that is all that there is to know that's important about them. Well, here's something else to think about as we make our way to Psalm 139. And believe me, we're going to get there in just a little bit. Uh, but here's something else to think about. Most people prefer to speak of themselves as two out of these three voices. Either the victim or the hero. It's pretty rare as I talk with people engaged in conflict within a, a church or a congregation it's pretty rare as I watch the evening news. It's pretty rare as I watch kiddos arguing with one another and then going to tell mom and dad. It's pretty rare that I will hear anybody describe themselves as a villain, as somebody who's contributed to the mess, as somebody who's kind of responsible for how hard and challenging things are. Pretty rare to hear that kind of a voice. Because we like to see ourselves instead as amazing. We like to see ourselves as impressive. We don't want to have other people think poorly of us. We don't want to have other people think of us as, as villains. So it's hard for us to talk about ourselves that way. The reason I'm bringing all this up is because as we come to Psalm 139, and begin to read our way through this psalm that tells us that God knows everything there is to know about us. All of the voices that we tend to use, they kind of become irrelevant. Especially that uh, the hero and the victim voice, as uh, we become aware that God knows our villain voices and our villain stories as well. He knows everything there is to know about us. And that makes Psalm 139 a little bit of a scary psalm. Let me read us through this psalm a moment and have you think with me about God's amazing knowledge of us, of all the voices that we use, of all the personas that we carry, of all the ways that we behave and think and act, his deep, deep knowledge of all of us. Psalm 139, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit 
and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being, you knit me together in my mother's womb, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body, and all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked. Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord? and abhor those who are in rebellion against you. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And that is Psalm 139. Kind of a scary psalm when you think about it. When it speaks of God's deep, deep knowledge of us, the knowledge that slices through all of the pretense that we sometimes put up about us being victims or us being heroes or us never being villains. The knowledge that God sees it all, well, that's pretty scary. That is a little frightening for all of us who want to pretend that we're kind of amazing, <laughs> that we're kind of impressive. Verses 1 through 18 of this psalm spells this out, that God knows absolutely everything there is to know about us. Lord, you have searched me and you know me. And uh, that verb that the psalmist uses there is kind of an interesting one, the verb to know. It's not merely uh, a verb that talks about knowing facts about somebody. Like, I know facts about George Washington, or I know facts about Elon Musk, or I know facts about God. 
This verb, to know, in the Hebrew is based on a noun meaning the hand, yod. The verb yada is to know something by, it, by feel, to know something uh, by experience, to know something in terms of intimacy. When the Bible speaks of a man knowing his wife, the Bible is talking about a man having sex with his wife. When the, when the psalmist here talks about God knowing us, the psalmist wants us to understand that God has deep and intimate knowledge of everything that we are. He doesn't just know facts about us. He knows us through and through. It's a deep and up-close, tactile almost, physical knowledge. He knew me before I was born. Knew the number of days that my life would occupy before any one of them came to be. He knows everywhere that I go, every word that I speak before I speak it, every thought from afar. There's that part of the, of the text from verses 13 to 18 that I love to read with the new moms in the hospital where I, I walk with them through this beautiful section of the text in which the psalmist says, the baby that you just gave birth to, God knows intimately. As this baby was being knit together in your womb, God saw his or her unformed body. That's deep knowledge. You, oh God, you know when I'm stressed. You know what stresses me out. You know why it stresses me out. You know completely what it would, what it would take to keep me from being stressed. You know what it is that relaxes me. You know why it relaxes me. You know my favorite ice cream flavor, my favorite way to relax. You know my friends. You know my fears. Oh God, you know my finest hopes. And the psalmist, the psalmist says, this knowledge, O oh God, of your knowledge of me is too wonderful for me even to think about, to understand. Verses 1 through 18 give us this picture that God is a God of deep and amazing knowledge of each single one of us. And then we get to verses 19 through 22 of this amazing text, and it's almost like you experience some whiplash there because all of a sudden we turn from God's amazing knowledge of us to this statement of judgment against those who are the enemies of God. Verses 19 through 22, it's the part of the text we'd rather skip over, frankly. It's the I have nothing but hatred for them part. That doesn't sound biblical, does it? To have hatred somebody how could that be a part of this psalm psalm 139 here it is in this psalm in the bible hate hatred of god's enemies i find this troubling this part of the text quite honestly i'm sometimes i'm not sure entirely what to do with it but because i trust that this is god's word I know that just because I don't understand it doesn't mean that I can then dismiss it or pretend that it doesn't matter. I have to trust that somehow there's truth there for me, for us, for life. And as I, th as I thought about this text again this past week and considered this ugly part of Psalm 139, this really kind of disturbing 
portion of Psalm 139. I think that maybe what David is doing, David is the author here, is that he is totally immersed, right, in this truth about God's love for us, his knowledge of us, I should say it that way, his knowledge of us. David is totally immersed in that great truth. And it perhaps is that kind of line of thinking that leads him to consider that, Dave, that God is not just deeply aware of who I am, but is deeply aware of evil. And uh, deeply aware of the evil that his enemies are capable of. Now somehow, David wants to join God in that, to align himself with this perfect and just and righteous God who knows him deeply and who knows the enemies of God deeply. And it's like David wants to join God there in some way and so professes to have the same kind of hatred for evil as God himself does. It's a difficult text, frankly. But those are the thoughts that I began to, to have as I considered it again this past week and thought about how we might talk about it here this morning. At the end of the text, after verses 1 through 18 display God's amazing knowledge of us, and then verses 19 through 22 take us into that kind of hard detour, the very end of the text, David prays two things. He prays for God to search him and to know his own thoughts. And later on, of course, in his life, David is going to see God do exactly that. As the prophet Nathan approaches David's throne uh, and says to him or speaks to him a parable about a wealthy man who steals a sheep from a poor man. It's a parable that really points to David and his murder of Uriah, his adultery with Bathsheba. When David gets all huffy about the man in the parable, Nathan, armed with the knowledge of God, points to David and says, you are that man. It's God answering David's Psalm 139 prayer in a way that's very, very unpleasant for David. A way that makes clear that God really does know everything about us, all of our thoughts, all of our hidden deeds. But this is a, an amazing thing. God's knowledge of David, his knowledge of us, he knows my words before I speak them. He knows the number of hairs on my head. And for some of us, that number is a lot bigger than for others. He knows the number of days that I will live before any one of them come to be. He knows my inner thoughts, my mixed motives, my, my impure desires, everything. <laughs> everything. God knows it. He knows it. And sometimes that's scary just to know how much God knows. That leads me to wonder this with all of you this morning. What are we to do with Psalm 139 today? Is this psalm terrifying or is this psalm comforting? Well, to start to answer that question, I just want to have you recognize with me a couple of interesting things about this psalm that, that David doesn't call God's knowledge terrifying. That David himself doesn't appear to be bothered or disturbed or 
annoyed or frightened that God does in fact know so very much about him. In fact, David calls God's knowledge wonderful and lofty and precious and vast. In verse 18, he says something interesting about God's knowledge, the number of thoughts that God has. He says that the number of thoughts that God has outnumbers the grains of sand. And if that phrase sounds familiar to you, it should. It's the kind of phrase that God used when he made promises to Abraham about how many descendants he would have. So when David uses this phrase here as he is describing God's knowledge, he's linking God's knowledge to the promises that God made to Abraham and to the faithfulness with which God has fulfilled those promises. So David himself is not bothered to be aware that um, God knows so much. In fact, he seems kind of impressed, wonderfully impressed actually, deeply impressed, awed that God knows so much. And I think that this psalm becomes even more comforting when you set this truth alongside another important truth that Scripture is so very clear about, and that is that God doesn't just know everything, but that God is a God of amazing and deep love. When you set Psalm 139, for example, alongside some of the gospel stories in which we see Jesus Christ, the Son of God, exercising amazing knowledge and love at the same time, when we put these things together, uh, we, can, we can come to some conclusions about how Psalm 139 ought to be understood even today. So, for example, let's go into a couple of stories out of the Gospels. Just one comes to mind, and that is Jesus and Peter. Peter being the one who denied Jesus three times on the night that, uh, before Jesus died. Jesus knows this about Peter. In fact, he prophesies to Peter that he will deny him three times before the rooster crows. Peter does that. Later on in the Gospel of John, we see Jesus and Peter connecting. And Jesus intentionally asks Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Giving Peter the opportunity to indicate his love for Jesus. And each time, Jesus does not say, I don't believe you, Peter. You've disappointed me, Peter. Away with you, Peter. No, each time after Peter professes his love for Jesus, uh, Jesus commissions him, feed my lambs. I want you on my team, Peter, even though you're broken and even though you've denied me three times. I knew this about you. I knew that you would do this. And even so, you belong to me. Another story out of the Gospels is, um, is so good for us, uh, that is so good for us, is Jesus and Zacchaeus. Luke 19, Jesus comes across this tax collector in Jericho, calls him out of the sycamore tree, knows his name, says, Zacchaeus, I want to go to your house and have dinner with you. Jesus knows everything there is to know about Zacchaeus. He knows that this is the kind of guy that dignitaries stay away from. He knows this is the kind of guy who is reviled and, re 
and detested by the people in his own hometown. He knows all these things about Zacchaeus, and yet this is the guy that he wants to have dinner with as he's making his way through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem and the cross. I want to have dinner with you, Zacchaeus. And in the course of having dinner with Zacchaeus, changes Zacchaeus' life. It's as if his knowledge of Zacchaeus in no way keeps Jesus away and in fact draws Jesus in to love Zacchaeus to health and to wholeness. It's an amazing thing. Jesus knows so much about Zacchaeus and, and still comes to his house. One more story out of the Gospels. Jesus and the woman who anointed him at Simon's house. This is the story out of Luke chapter 7. What's really funny about this story is that Simon thinks that Jesus is clueless. Simon's the Pharisee who invited Jesus to come over and have dinner. And Simon observes this woman anointing Jesus and weeping over Jesus and connecting with Jesus. And he's so sick of it. And he thinks to himself, if only Jesus really knew who this woman was, he wouldn't have anything to do with her. And Jesus addresses Simon by calling out Simon's thoughts, by calling out Simon's inhospitable behavior towards Jesus. Jesus not only knows this woman through and through, her sin, um, and his love for her, but he knows Simon through and through. This Jesus, this Jesus, uh, I want to have you focus with me on the woman. This Jesus loves this woman who has come to him, will not reject her, knows her through and through. Simon doesn't recognize that, uh, but Jesus knows her through and through and allows her to connect with him anyway. My friends, Jesus shows us that God's knowledge of our sin and shame and brokenness actually draws him closer to us. Instead of repelling him, our sinfulness seems to attract him. As if he knows this already, has accepted us uh, through his sacrifice on the cross, and is transforming us. To our surprise and delight, God loves to pour out his grace upon us. And the more, the better, in fact. Because the more we change under the power of his loving grace, the more glorious God reveals himself to be. A couple of final notes as we think, of, think about Psalm 139 together. Just some things to think about for you as you make your way into this new week. You know, this psalm proclaiming God's deep, deep knowledge of us and hinting at God's deep, deep grace for us, this psalm calls us to reject this habit that we seem to have developed of seeing people simplistically, as if they are only this or only that, as if they are only villains, perhaps, or only heroes. This psalm calls us out of that kind of simplistic thinking into a much more subtle or nuanced maybe, um, let's just say a much more biblical perspective on people. To recognize that the line between good and evil doesn't go around any of us, but that it actually travels right through us. 
and that we have bits of beauty within us, and we have bits of ugliness and the fall within us, all at the same time. And that this is true of everybody. This is true of every person I see on the news. This is true of the little kiddos that I see fighting with one another and screaming at each other and then going to their parents to tell on each other. This truth that there is ugliness and there is beauty in each one of us helps me to understand better the hard things that I see when I engage churches and help them through conflict. I see people at their best and I see people at their worst and none of it surprises me because I've learned out of Psalm 139 that God sees everything and that what he sees is pretty complicated. He sees everything. So you and I are called to see one another with grace and with truth. And then the, uh, the final thing I, th I think I'd like to have you go into this week with is, is just this sense that this psalm, Psalm 139, changes the way that we kind of carry ourselves. Uh, we can no longer see ourselves uh, simply as heroes or as victims, the two roles that we kind of lean into easily. But that there is villainy within me. I have to be honest about that. God sees it, and because God sees it and because he accepts me, I can make my way to understanding it and acknowledging it too. That there is evil at work within me. That I am not the hero in every conflict that I myself am engaged in. That I'm not the victim in every conflict that I'm engaged in. That I am the villain, quite often, actually. I can afford to be honest with myself about myself because I know that God sees everything and accepts me through Jesus Christ, his son, my savior. Let me wrap this up with a, with a quotation from one of my favorite authors, and maybe he's one of your favorite authors as well. His name is Tim Keller, and uh, in one of his books, he writes this, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense it humbles us out of our self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. And that's right. God knows you through and through. Every hair on your head, he's got it numbered. The day that you are, in, are living through right now, he's got that one numbered too. And the remaining days that you have here on earth. The thoughts that you have, the words that you speak, he knows them before you speak them. And because of what we see in Jesus, we know that even though he knows all that, that stuff about us, the good, the bad, the ugly, and everything in between, he accepts us anyway through Jesus Christ, his son. Would you pray with me? Your Father God, we too are awed, amazed 
by this incredible knowledge that you have of us. You have access to every, every corner, every square inch of our souls. You have the key that unlocks every door that we have tried to lock against you. No secret is hidden from you. You see it all. And while that could be scary, dear Father, because of Jesus, your Son, it's actually wonderful. And we're glad that you know these things, that you are transforming us. You're remaking and renewing us, opening locked doors, bringing light to darkness, giving yourself to us in ways that make us like Jesus. Lord God, would you help us to see ourselves in that way? And would you help us to see all those with whom we will spend time this week with more grace, with um, a sense that they too have vestiges and pieces of the fall within them and great potential for grace because you are a God of grace. Thank you for all of this, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Dear friends, I'm glad to have spent this time with you traveling through Psalm 139 together today. And I just want to have you leave our worship time together with this blessing. People of God, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with all of you. Amen.